play golf. I used to play golf. And the reason I played golf was because my very first job, which I had, I believe, when I was 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Child labor. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, uh, I had a job at a public golf course in one of the northern, very wealthy suburbs of Chicago. My job duties were things like um, cleaning clubs, which I think maybe a lot of people don't know that. But but when you're a member of a golf course, after you play, you drop your golf bag off, and then people like me clean your clubs Whoa. and then put it back in its little home where it goes until they come to the golf course again. Um, there were also janitorial duties. Okay. But the reason that I now hate golf and no longer play it is because, to give you the time frame, this was the mid-80s, okay? okay. Because I'm very, very old. (laughs) And this was where I first learned, like really started to understand things about Mm -hmm. the patriarchy. Uh, We didn't (laughs) Uh call it that then, but when you watch (laughs) these men come in and just (laughs) there was one guy who used to show up he would his wife would come in we'd all say hi to his wife he'd kiss her and she'd go leave and go do her day and then he would cheat with people on the golf course oh my god there was a guy named Freddie the Eagle who had because he looked he was older he was like in his sixties or maybe he maybe he was in his forties and just people then looked like they were in their sixties but yes <laughs> drunk constantly and it did have this basic head shape of an eagle the most foul mouth person just terrible misogynist and all of these guys and these were like the members of the club the ones that were there every day and to think that these were the adults in the room right. These people are not cool. Oh, yeah. So no, I don't I don't play golf anymore. Okay. Thank you for that story. I feel like this is uh, an insight and window into Chad's life and needs to be a memoir at some point. But yeah. the good news is that is more golf than we will get in the story titled Murder on the Links. <laughs> yes. Yes. So this is Poro Pals. <laughs> And today, we are getting everyone ready to read Murder on the Links. Yes. This Mm -hmm. is the second book in the series, the Perot books, um, written by Agatha Christie. We took a little detour after Uh doing the first one. We went uh, 50 years in the future (laughs) and did Halloween Party, but now we're right back at it. Nose to the grindstone. Mm -hmm. Is there a golfing thing like... um, Tea to the grass? I don't know. I don't know. I can't help you. (laughs) Um, That's the fifth time you said that to me this week. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. But yeah, so now moving forward, it's all rules, all in order until we say it's not. Yep. And we make an exception and everybody has to fall in line. (laughs) Yeah. So this this took me a little bit of a second to dial back from Halloween party and put myself back in post mysterious affair at styles 
world, both in the book, in Agatha Christie's career, in time itself and what's happening. Yeah. Where were you? How was how was that like transition? I'm so glad to be back in Hastingsville. I'm so glad to have our narrator be Arthur Hastings, who we won't talk about anything that happens in the book right now, but it is just the tone is so different than Halloween party. And I was, I found, I felt refreshed. I actually felt like, oh, thank you. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I liken this book to, okay, on Instagram, when you're doing your stories, the first hearts filter that comes up, if you're like putting a filter on your video, the world is just all pink and purple and there are hearts floating everywhere. That's how I imagine how Hastings sees the world and every book narrated by Hastings. <laughs> yes. We are just in constant Hartville looking for love wherever we can. He's like a goldfish. He doesn't have <laughs> any memory. Whatever he sees, he's like, oh my God. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Yeah. This is the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. Five minutes later, <gasps> the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. <laughs> Great. Exactly right. Like, how does he get through a department store? I don't know. I don't know. You do get the feeling that he is very close to marrying every woman that he meets. It's, yes. Yeah. He's like one anecdote away mm-hmm. in every conversation. Yeah. But there is a lack of cynicism in Hastings's view that I am happy to be back in. Me too. I wanted to quickly say that we went over the fact that there that in this episode we've already talked about golf more than golf comes yes. up in the book. <laughs> yeah. But there is another thing we have a we have a setting change. Yeah. We go from uh from the UK to France. Many times. <laughs> uh not just once. And the reason why we're making this joke is there's just a lot of transportation involved. A lot of in transportation. This. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we're in France. We're in a new country. We are encountering new police departments, new methodologies. I think Agatha Christie had to do that after Styles. I think she had to send us somewhere else. She was like, I don't want to just redo this. I feel like this book has to be in some way a direct reaction to Styles, where it's trying to make itself individuate itself and make itself its own thing. And so that's kind of an interesting way. Ah, I'm coming up with this right now. But like, you know how it's like, okay, I think Poirot is created by Styles and like the mystery itself. And in many ways, I feel like this book is also a creation of Styles. Like it's it's in response to it. Mm-hmm. And then as we get further away, like when we get to the murder of Roger Ackroyd, Styles kind of recedes into the background. Yeah. Yeah. And so something else is just kind of exciting is that we're recording this in 2023 and the book was published in 1923. So it's 100 years old. Yeah. Do you know what that is for an anniversary? Is that like. (laughs) I don't think people live long enough. Yeah. To be married 100 years. Yeah. I think they're going to have to invent like as people get their heads like cryogenically frozen, they're just going to have to like really start adding to the tradition. For some reason, I feel like it should be like a piece of, like a sizable piece of bark. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's what I was just thinking. Like you just take it out of a tree and give it to someone. And it's a big gesture because your hands still work. 
it's a huge gesture, exactly, because you have to have someone take you there, and because you clearly yourself, I'm not going to be walking to the woods. Yeah. Wow. Hey, speaking of marriage, let's talk a little bit about what is going on in Agatha Christie's life as she's writing this. And we just want to linger. This is not, this is not a spoiler. We are going to talk about the epigraph. So if you're really concerned about us saying a word of the book, then like hide your ears for a second. This is 1923 and Agatha Christie does not know it yet, but she is on the cusp of, or a couple years before, leaving her first husband. Yes. Then subsequently marrying this, like, wonderful man who takes her around the world and forms, like, all of her books. So ultimately that's great. And she ends up uh, leaving her husband because of infidelity. So we, we have to kind of infer right now that maybe she is, maybe things aren't as great as they first appeared. Would you say that? Yes. And I I feel like that is a great way of looking into the wording of the epigraph. Yes, yeah. That is phenomenal. Yeah, and we just want to like take a second and pause and parse through it with a fine-tooth comb. The epigraph reads, To my husband, a fellow enthusiast for detective stories. Okay, starts off not that bad. And to whom I am indebted for so much helpful advice... And criticism. Nothing says pre-divorce more than I'm indebted to you for your advice and criticism. Yeah. No, thank you. No spouse wants criticism and advice. Relationship advisor, Caitlin. If you're like, you know what? Can I just offer you a kind critique? Just walk away and rethink all your choices. Yes, and the yeah. feeling that I also have is that the husband was is also potentially offering criticism on her detective stories, mm-hmm. which yeah. it seems like there's one writer in the family. Yeah, she's not asking you for your advice. Um, and also just like anytime you're describing a spouse and you use the verb indebted, I feel <laughs> like... We know they were traveling a lot. Just throw him out of the train or just like leave him on the platform. Or if you're on a steam liner, like going around the world, just give him a slight kick over the edge and move on, which she eventually does. That does sound like something that you would hear during a divorce proceeding. No, I am indebted to you for all the helpful advice and criticism. Yeah, I just feel like this was written after a big argument. She's about to leave her editor, too. She's about to make a lot of changes for herself. For good. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. She's like brewing in this like pre-storm part of her life that has some really dramatic, sensational repercussions. Yeah. So a little bit about this book and kind of how it came to be. Her biographer calls this book very French. (laughs) And like, I think this is how we can understand it, is that she says Agatha Christie was influenced a lot by French mysteries. Um, She spent some of her youth in France going to finishing school. And even Agatha Christie herself observes that the book style and tone is very different than the other ones she wrote at this time. Maybe this is kind of like, I'm guessing, but she's, you know, she's written styles. It's so successful. She's written The Secret Adversary. And now she's probably, you know, like she drew styles from her time working 
in medicine and at a pharmacy. And so I feel like she's going to her next resource, which is probably her experience reading French mysteries. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's kind of using what you have and also commenting on French mysteries and maybe even saying Poirot is the superior detective. What do you think? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that rings very true. I think that this one could be read as kind of like a spunky planting her flag in the mystery genre a little bit and saying like, this is what I've built my books on and watch me completely school you. A little bit else about what's going on in her life at this time. It's super fascinating. We don't know or we have not found out yet. I did some like light Googling and couldn't find any info. I bet her biographer knows. But in 1922, so the year before this book was published, Agatha Christie goes on a long international journey with her husband around the quote-unquote British Empire as they promote this big empire exhibition, which is a six-month exhibition of cultural stuff from around the empire. So it's like, look at all the things we have that are other people's. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I can, and like now knowing the context, this doesn't sound as romantic as I'd first thought. Going around the world with someone you love, it's like, what is worse than traveling with someone you're kind of beginning to despise? Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> um, she's observing a lot. She gets a lot of inspiration for her other characters and her books. The man in the brown suit is kind of a direct result of uh, this trip. And it works really well reading it that way. Kind of imagining yourself along with her on this international trip, just kind of writing writing this book through like legs of a journey. And that's just a really helpful way to frame it, I think. It was first published as a four-part serialization in a grand magazine from December of 22 to March of 23, issues 214 to 217. It was originally titled The Girl with the Anxious Eyes. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. You had called Styles Byzantine, <laughs> and I feel like this book is like, how about we multiply that by two? <laughs> right, right. How can you make something more exponentially Byzantine? It's mm -hmm. this book. Yeah. yeah. It builds up to it. It ramps up to it. It doesn't start like that, but boy. Other just like cool little facts about this book, well, about her trip – I get the Christie's like, how about I just go do really cool things and like set world records? Um, when she is in Cape Town, she becomes the first British woman to surf standing up. <laughs> wow. As if she didn't need to become more interesting. Right. And also, kind of fun fact, this story is the first recorded use of the phrase, the scene of the crime. That is fascinating. And I think it's interesting that like, yeah, we just think about it. But like, of course, that would have to come from fiction because it's like a fictional scene. But now actual police officers use it in like their press conferences. That is so bananas. Yeah. Okay. So we wanted to give you a little preparation for like things to look out for. We had already said it wasn't a mistake that I said she took styles and multiplied it by two. There is a really fun theme that is so excessive. <laughs> Yeah. That it's just fun to start like taking note of. And that's a theme of like doubles and mirrors and things refracting 
you know, like how we had too much strychnine in uh, <laughs> styles. I think we have too many doubles here in yeah. a really fun way. There are so many. It's it's amazing. Get yourself prepared for Hastings Ovision and just kind of living, living in the world of Hastings. Um, enjoy it. Uh, because he we, he comes back, but we take a break from him after this. There's also this really interesting discussion of people's morbid fascination with crime. I feel like it's kind of calling into question, and this is like that age-old thing of like, why are people so interested in murder stories? It's nothing new. But she's kind of like playing around with how moral that is, and she's kind of bringing it... Um, calling that into question. So it's kind of a fun little question you can kind of ask yourself. Why are we so interested in murder mysteries? That was kind of, I think you and I kind of started the podcast thinking about that. Like, what what does this give us? So she starts really asking that question. I think that's also, it's uh, timely for any number of reasons, but with the advent of the very a form of media that you are listening to right now, a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, there's been a lot of talk about why true crime podcasts are so popular. And is it actually healthy? Is it actually morally sound to be that into them? And this is just, you know, Agatha Christie asking that question 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) literally. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like, guys, it's not new. I don't know. Do you think, Chad, that people can solve this mystery? No, absolutely not. It is much more complicated than styles. Yeah. Yeah. So don't put pressure on yourself. Um, no, no pressure. Yeah. It's fun to guess, though. Like, again, track your guesses. Yep. Um, I do just have, like, a l- two little clues from quotes uh, to help you out. One kind of going with the doubles. Poirot says to Hastings pretty early on, Mon ami, two people rarely see the same thing. So kind of keeping that in mind. Mm-hmm. And always look out for when Poirot gets his little gleamy, excited green eyes. And Hastings says, I learned that with Poirot, the less dangerous he looked, the more dangerous he was. That's a great clue. I mean, distills why I love Poirot so much. He's like, oh, look at me. Patent leather shoes. I am so on to you. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the other thing that we like really need to prepare people for and that I had a plot twist for myself reading it is the fact that there are abridged versions. Oh, boy. Yes. That um, do not say they're abridged. So, Chad, how did you you kind of uncovered this? For this podcast, my method is I read the book once. And then I go back to it and I read it again, taking notes while listening to the uh, book on, you know, the whatever, the audio book, I guess they call it. I have the version that I'm reading is the is a relatively new publication of links. And it's part of the Agatha Christie series that you see at all the bookstores now. Right. And what I found is that that version, the print version, is pretty heavily abridged from the version that was before this, like the original. And I noticed it because <laughs> this is like probably too complicated, but it's perfect because of the the episode yeah. and like what we're talking about. <laughs> the first audiobook that I was listening to, it was the unabridged version of the book. So I'm reading the abridged version and I'm listening to the unabridged version and I was stunned. 
yeah. at like how much had been taken out of the version I was reading. But then I found the Hugh Frazier version of it, the mm-hmm. gentleman who plays Hastings on the Perot TV show, and he reads Murder on the Links, and it says that it's abridged, and it has the same cover as the book I'm reading. So I'm like, okay, now we have it all figured out. I'm going to be reading the same thing of the book Mm -hmm. that I'm listening to. And I press play on the thing and I'm reading the first chapter and they cut out something in the audio book. So the audio book is abridged from the abridged version of the book. Oh my God. How can this be? So just so you know, a lot of different versions going around. Yeah. You had told me this, and I was like, ho ho, well, I have this really weird copy that I got for six dollars. <laughs> That's right. Uh, book, what is it? Bookstore.org or bookshop.org? It literally looks like someone got the license to print it and then just like printed it in a back alley somewhere. <laughs> like the lack of attention to reader, exp- like the text is so small. And almost jarring to read. The cover has nothing to do with anything. It's of like a snowy night. I'm like, there's no snow. Takes place deep in the summer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, you know what, though? Like, I bet this is the real version because this person wouldn't take like editorial liberties. They don't give a shit. They're making a $5 profit off of like a $1 book. I turn on Phoebe Reads a Mystery. I hit play. And I also had this experience of being really lost. I was like, wait, am I passing out am i like not reading correctly right and i think the way that you can get the most unabridged copy which is nice because it's for free if you have a phone and a podcast app is the phoebe reads a mystery version yeah and i would honestly suggest that because what they're cutting is a lot of characterization yes and that to me, feels unfortunate. I can understand if they're like trying to pick up the pace a little bit, but if the plot is so complicated, like just let the book be itself. Oh, um, I agree totally. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of like Poirot being his cute, fussy little self. And I think that that kind of really, it kind of creates like a more just like sanitized version of the story. And also there's a lot of like foreshadowing and red herrings about specific characters and just like a lot of tone that's created by the stuff that's cut out that I really missed. And I think even rereading what I have, I'm like, I'm enjoying this a lot more I and I <laughs> than I did before because it has a bit more of like a beating heart. So if you can get the Phoebe Reads version, I'd say just listen to that. The beating heart part is a really good point because yeah. I feel I'm feeling now because I've been reading these abridged versions for this whole time since mm-hmm. we've been doing this podcast. And I'm starting to think that like they do probably move more quickly yeah. than the unabridged versions, but there are things that are definitely like, I feel like I should know more about that. What is the setup? How should we have people like set themselves up? Where should they be? What should they be doing? What do you think is the like ideal setup for this book? It depends on whether or not you want to make it more about golf. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you're like, there's not a lot of golf in this, either read it while watching golf in the background Mm 
mm-hmm. or go to a golf course and read it. Yeah. Um, it's a great question, Caitlin, because I think also Mysterious Affair at Styles was definitely like a murder mystery at a mansion sort of thing. And there was changing of settings to go to London occasionally, but it was really kind of set in this giant home. Yeah. And then Halloween Party is just this whacked out definitive <laughs> Halloween murder yeah. mystery, um, very gothic, very intense. But this is a little weird because you're right. It takes place in the summer. And Mm -hmm. it takes place at like three or four different settings. Mm -hmm. There's not, I would say, I agree that this would be more of a day read for me. Oh, yeah. This is something I would read on a break as opposed to getting ready and all bundled up with my flannel blanket and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, various servants uh, helping me um, (laughs) Uh as I normally read the books, right? Like, you know, in a lounge chair, like at, you know, 730 to to cap Mm -hmm. off the day. This one is a more of a daytime read, yeah. If you are in the Northern Hemisphere and a little cold, prop yourself up in a little like sunspot, like a cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like read it this way. Or while you're in transit, you know, if you're on a train or a ferry, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, um, you know, I always create a Spotify playlist uh, for your reading needs. It's good reading music. I tried to find within maybe a 20 year time span some like nice fun chill french jazz so i tried to really set the scene that way but i was in kind of a snarky mood at (laughs) one point and i also added some ambient train and boat noise (laughs) so (laughs) either skip over that or if you really want to like get in the zone if Hastings is on a train, listen to that train noise. If Poirot is on a ferry, listen to that. But also we want to recognize that we do have listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. And yes. so this is your summer. This is your time. Enjoy this book immediately, um, wherever you are, wh- whatever sunny locale you're in. Yeah, I know we have a few Flat Earth listeners also. Um, <laughs> so you can just read it, whatever. You're all good. <laughs> I know. Just- Totally. Just don't fall off the edge. Yep. Um, yep. And don't ask yourself why all the other planets are spherical. So I think, is there anything <laughs> else we want to like prep people for? Oh, you had said, Chad, that there are like some other kind of media versions of this uh, story. If people want to like rather watch a little show or watch a movie. I have found that I have, when I've been reading these books, I have wanted to immerse myself in the other versions of them. I find it particularly fascinating the way that screenplays are adapted from books, especially books that are this complicated. And so I was really surprised to find that there is a version of Murder on the Links in the Agatha Christie's Perot PBS slash BBC series, and that the adapter is the great mystery writer Anthony Horowitz. I find it to be very, very fun to read the book and then watch how they take it and make it more linear, because they have to. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that version of it, which you can find, I'm sure, on BritBox, or we don't need to tell people where to find it. Then there is also, and this is what I am totally fascinated by, and I'm not even going to try the name because it would just be terrible. But there is a Japanese adaptation of this that was a two-night TV show in 2005. Mm-hmm. Oh and God. the first night, had they had adapted the ABC murders, and the second night was the murder on the links. 
Amazing. Uh, there was also a French adaptation uh, mm, of it, okay. too, that aired in 2014. And there is a graphic novel that came out uh, in 2007. So oh. tons of different versions of Murder on the Links, and none of them, I believe, have anything to do with golf. Chad, is that it? Do, do, is everybody prepared? I feel like most people should be prepared. Dive into this book. It is an experience. Or like skip the book completely and just listen to us do like mental acrobatics as we try to like briefly summarize this plot um, that is bonkers. You know what? But as we are giving their advice, you and I are going to dive into it fearlessly as someone would dive into a pool at a French resort in the summertime. In the summertime. Yes, that's exactly how I'm diving in because I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I had some time as a professional diver, yes. and um, yeah, so my form will be people would gasp as we dive into this book. <laughs> yes, okay, I think we can't extend our metaphors anymore. So with that, we will say goodbye. Adieu. I will see you in Merlinville. <laughs> oh, wonderful! I've never been to France. Uh-huh. This is very exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is great. We're going to have a fun time. Okay, cool. See you there, Chad. See ya. Bye. Bye.